Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Department of Justice's court filing in response to Trump's amateurish efforts to delay the investigation into his mishandling of classified national defense secrets and discuss the incriminating inventory of missing documents, including 43 empty folders which contained highly classified top-secret documents. Joining us is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. He is the Executive Producer and Host of the Talking Feds podcast and Legal Affairs Columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is, The Mar-a-Lago Search Looks More Like It Could Provide a Way to Hold Trump Accountable, and we will discuss the possibility that Trump will be indicted, but that will likely happen after the November election. Then we will get an assessment of Thursday's address to the nation on the MAGA Republicans' assault on American democracy by President Biden that the major TV networks and Fox News did not carry, and speak with Alexander Kaysar, a professor of history and social policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where his current research interests include election reform, the history of democracies, and the history of poverty. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and previously he chaired the Social Science Research Council's National Research Commission on Voting and Elections, and his latest book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Then finally we will speak with Dr. Sasha Dovzik, a London-based author from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, and a special projects curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London. She holds research affiliations with the University of London, and we will discuss her article at CNN, Don't Wake the Nuclear Giant on Our Doorstep, that deals with the legacy of Chernobyl and the current dangers posed by the Russian occupation of Europe's largest nuclear power plant, which Sasha grew up beside and toured as a young school student. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego. He's executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is, The Mar-a-Lago Search Looks More Like It Could Provide a Way to Hold Trump Accountable. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harry Thanks, Littman. Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Harry. And on a Tuesday, the Justice Department filed in response to Trump's amateurish efforts to slow down the investigation uh, with his request for a special master. What we're learning now is just explosive in terms of, of the inventory of what was seized on on August the 8th by the FBI, 43 empty folders marked uh, classified, along with 42 empty folders marked return to staff secretary military aid among 10,000 documents seized. And the question rears its ugly head. If these highly classified folders, and, and I, my understanding is that some of the material that was seized is so sensitive that the FBI and counterintelligence personnel at the DOJ, Jay Bratt's people, looking into these documents had to be read in to get cleared to even look at the documents. Yeah, so can you imagine, let me just clarify that for listeners. I, you know, I was a U.S. attorney, a fairly high up position in the department, but a couple times where I had to really see top level stuff, yeah, you you have to, in fact, get, go up a level that, that at the time I didn't even know the name of the clearance I was getting. This is all so serious and grave, and it's 
for anyone with any whiff of national security experience hearing Trump's lawyer uh, say on a Thursday before Judge Cannon, you know, it's uh, akin to an overdue library book is such an an insult to um, the not just their work, but to the um, actual intelligence um, exigencies of the United States. You know, we're talking about documents that without hyperbole at all. Um, can get people killed, and perhaps, for all we know, have gotten people killed. Um, all right, so, but returning to your point, first, you, as um, you note, all of these things, all this greater transparency was be- is because Trump um, had ill-advised uh, motions, whether they were for public purposes or actual legal purposes. But we now know a lot more than we did before. And this latest revelation on the inventory is in breadth and quality. By quality, I mean, you know, the nature of the documents, just head spinning. If, you know, if your head didn't already spin around, it, it, now it, it, it did a, a whole new pivot. Um, 10,000 documents, all all public. Think about that for a moment. That's, you know, feet of, of docs. But uh, it shouldn't obscure the um, incredibly serious kind of details. And here's just one that came out on Thursday. Trump had seven top secret, and that's what we're talking about, you know, by definition, by definition, uh, materials that that could um, impose exceptionally grave, co- you know, costs or um, consequences on our uh, military and national defense um, capabilities. Seven in his desk drawer. Now the thing, you know, um, we, you might have hoped before. We might have hoped maybe just carted off a dumpster full of stuff and left left it strewn around. But this obviously makes it um, very unlikely that he did, as does all these empty. How did these um, folders become empty? Maybe he just took them empty and he wanted to use them for placemats. But, you know, we're told repeatedly by our national counterintelligence folks, you've got to indulge some pretty bad assumptions. So, you know, it seems more likely that he riffled through them and wanted to do something with them. So now we have a picture of much greater kind of haul on his part, but with the real likelihood of his doing stuff with them and whether that's, you know, brandishing them for for friends or or doing something more mercenary. It's absolutely blood chilling. Well, when you have people like Michael Cohen, his former lawyer and fixer, and his former national security advisor, John Bolton, saying that they think that there are even more classified documents squirreled away at Bedminster. Can you imagine? The question just raises its ugly head. You know, what happened to the contents of these empty files? It's worse, in a way, that they're empty than that they had documents inside of them. Oh, you betcha. I mean, if they in the in the latter case, maybe they stay. Maybe we got lucky. Uh, certainly through no effort of, of his own, but but you know if he if he um, carted them away with with materials in them and they're now empty, the mind reels. But I can't think of a um, benign explanation. It, so it's really, you know, it's the the combination of the sort of megalomania and childishness, but also the scoundrel, you know, what the the seeing everything in government, not just in the lens of his own interest, but as possible ways to make money or get leverage or have power or exact blackmail. What did he have? You know, what that that, um, uh, you know, information on on president on the French, uh, you know, President Macron include, you know, there's there's um, we I think we've I think it's pretty easy to indulge the most sinister explanations. But now that's actually the what the Office of National Director of Intelligence is doing because they have to do it. So, 
you know, we we are trying to do an assessment of damage, um, you know, and you see little stray events like last October, a, a um, missive to the field and the CIA saying, look, you know, we're having problems with our human sources. You've really got to buckle down and think safety first. You know, what could have precipitated that and what relationship does it have to to, you know, the scoundrels um having all these documents on hand it's it's breathtaking you know i i were you people are used to um kind of a, a level of trump bashing um but th- this just in the most sort of sober down the middle you know look at what bill barr had had to say we're we're talking about exceptionally grave uh, conduct, the consequences of which we may never know. Well, if you go back to 2016, the real information that President Obama had from right. the CIA right. and the NSA when he wanted to meet with McConnell and Ryan and right. the Democratic counterparts to go public to say that Russia was interfering in the elections, it wasn't the much ballyhooed steel dossier. What it was? No, no, was, no, exactly. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it, well, what it was was that the CIA had a source inside the Kremlin, inside Putin's office, the top aide to the deputy national security advisor who was in in and out of Putin's office. He was their source. And what happened was when Trump got nominated and and then elected, this guy said to the CIA, "You got to get me out because I don't trust Trump." So they, they exfiltrated Oleg Smilenkov and his family from Russia and they put them in a safe house in Virginia and somebody in the Trump administration later outed them uh, and called CNN and the camera showed up and then they had to move this guy. So I don't know who did the outing. But, but the, the point, point is so well taken. I mean, we really need to think about not just oh, it's kind of strewn around and somebody picks it up. Hmm. We, we, there are hundreds of people of great sophistication in Russia, you know, dedicated to trying to get this information and, of course, prevent our getting their information. Some, uh, you know, somebody fell from a hospital window on the seventh floor uh, last week in Russia. It was well, you know, and that was a, a, a Putin murder. That's what, you know, just like the... Uh, the the little um, umbrella pokes on the on a park bench with poison on a park bench in London. These are really really a wicked people, but people who are um, you know are are committed adversaries who for whom the coin of the realm is exactly the information that's hanging around in his desk drawer. <sighs> you know, well, uh, it's, it's, and and in the storeroom. Yeah. which didn't even have a lock on it until Jay Brett visited yeah. there in June and was told that everything, that the DOJ and the National Archives now have everything, that uh, all the boxes, which obviously was a lie and puts both... There was the, a solid year, Ian, I'm sorry to interrupt, but people for, you know, forget about it. There was a solid year when nobody in government knew he had anything classified. And the solid four months after that, where he's dithering around and making executive privilege claims before um, the archives even tells the FBI and DOJ, 16 months where he's got his mitts on this stuff and nobody in a position to stop him uh, knows, you know, what, what he's, what he's squirreling away, which is hundreds of pages of documents that again, by definition, you know, people criticize with good reason, the, you know, the over, um, use of the classification lowest level of, you know, just classified when you get up to top secret, I guarantee you, you, you know, people who really know what they're doing, have said this could this could kill people or this could you know reveal sources and methods and or this could take million this could set us back in what we're doing for years and years you know he he's jerking around at best you know it could be you could indulge much more much darker sort of manchurian candidate scenarios but at best he's jerking around with the most sort of serious you know it's like he's 
he's juggling you know nuclear material and doesn't even know what he's holding it's it would be laughable except it's so um potentially catastrophic well an example of how catastrophic it could be he had the football the the military aid that has the codes that nuclear codes following him all the time if he revealed to the russians the codes and how they're created if there was a nuclear first strike on the United States when <laughs> when the football was opened by Biden, it may f- turn out that, that it wouldn't work. You know, I mean, that's an extreme example. But in the in the, well, you know, this the tightest circle, I think that has probably changed. But, you know, that we we're, we're talking about just that level of stuff. And you you contrast that with his. Right you know, cavalier, and his continuing even today in court to try to, um, say, exert some kind of possessory interest. No, they're still his in a way. That's the, the, the necessary implication of his arguing there's an executive privilege claim to be made here. Because an executive privilege claim, why would you need a special master? Executive privilege means goes right back to the archives. It's got, he's got no more right to it than you or I. But, but if he, what he seems to be uh, propounding to the judge, and she seems to be at least flirting with accepting it, is a notion that there, he's got some interest in this stuff. If that's true, it's it's a disaster on many levels, but one of them is legal because then that would undermine the entire you know basic the whole case about retention and obstruction and the like. If he has some bona fide claim that he can you know have them or have a have a share of them, it's it's you know a um, a debacle. Sure, and she's a superior to the magistrate judge uh, Bruce Reinhardt, so. Yeah. She's in a strong position there. Apparently, on the August the 8th raid, they were able to get, the FBI was able to get the last 60 days of the CCTV footage of who went in and out of the yeah. the place, but nothing prior to that. And as I mentioned, when Jay Bratt and the FBI went there on June the 3rd and were assured that there was no more material, uh, at least a couple of days later, Bratt at least said to the Trump people, at least put a decent lock on the door. <laughs> well, I mean, what the biggest detail of all, they go there on the third and they tell them it's all here. You can't go into these other places. And they accepted right. at the time they leaned over. Bar- it's so ironic to hear him suggesting that they, you know, didn't didn't give him proper um, uh, respect as a former president. They 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 cut him so much slack and he used every centimeter of it to to jerk around, as Bill Barr put it, with with you know u- serious U.S. interests. It's not just a matter of you know regular flat feet wanting some evidence, you know, wanting the drugs. I mean, they they're, they're talking about the stuff that's the equivalent of you know plutonium or whatever. He's got there, and he's just completely um, concealing it, and and somebody. Probably he uh, legally, that is, um, lied about it. It's it, right. You know, well, it, one of the statutes that he's exposed to, USC 793, prohibits willfully retaining information relating to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation. So. Yeah. There you have it. You would think. And then the next one, it, even more serious after the subpoena, is the uh, obstruction one. And that's where you can't conceal or lie or anything like that once you know there's an investigation. So after the subpoena, the case for the obstruction is very strong. People were struck. I was struck. We were waiting. Will they charge? Will, they, will espionage be in the warrant? But then we saw obstruction. Uh-oh. And, you know... At the time, again, it was just this is a mere um, less than about four weeks ago. Um, it was just well, we knew they had to get the documents, as indeed they did. But now, because of Trump's, um, you know, blundering and hapless lawyering, we know a lot uh, more, and that includes what seems like a pretty strong case of certainly somebody there, and likely him, given the way he runs his shops. Um, to to conceal, lie, et cetera. And that, that's, you know, obstruction's the most serious of sure. the three charges in the warrant. 
So there is some speculation that there could be an indictment um, based upon this outrageous stuff that we're talking about. And we don't know how Trump chose these. We don't know for, for what purpose he chose these documents. We don't know who helped him choose this 10,000 documents. I mean, this is, this is a lot of work that went into cherry-picking what he needed and what he's been holding on to. So that's pretty alarming. But And we also know, of course, that Pat Philbin and Pat Cipollone testified on Friday to a grand jury, a DOJ grand jury, uh, looking into the insurrection. So there's a lot of threads there. But if Trump is to be indicted, it won't happen till after the election, surely, Harry. Yeah, I think you can count on that. You know, we are on two tracks. And remember, they did storm in to recapture the documents, at least in Mar-a-Lago. Now there are suggestions he may have more, you know, uh, secreted around in other places. But so, but he's got so time the, to get rid of those, hasn't he? Yeah, um, that's an interesting point, if that's what he would want to do with them. And again, would he do it like on his own in the base? You know, he, that's the thing about Trump. He, need, he needs um, uh, people to do things for him. Um, so but even uh, I'm just saying, even um, leaving uh, that aside, if we now have um, uh, everything they said in court, the investigation is in its early stages, which it wouldn't normally be when you serve a search warrant of this magnitude. But it, we, it, it was here because they had a, an independent reason for serving it. So I think even if it weren't in the shadow of the election, we shouldn't expect it so soon. But given that it is, that um, uh, policy on the DOJ's part's a little amorphous, but you have to imagine Garland and the department will call all um, – uh, so, you know, such uh, make all such judgment calls in leaning over backwards not to look overzealous. So for a few reasons, I think uh, there's not a chance we see anything in the next couple months. Well, Harry Lippman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. You know, it's a pleasure. Have a good holiday weekend, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. And again, I've been speaking with Harry Lippman, who's a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department. He's now a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, and the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Mar-a-Lago's search looks more like it could provide a way to hold Trump accountable. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of Thursday's address to the nation on the MAGA Republican assault on American democracy by President Biden that the major TV networks and Fox News did not carry. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Kesar, who's a professor of history and social policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where his current research interests include election reform, the history of democracies, the history of poverty. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and previously he chaired the Social Science Research Council's National Research Commission on Voting and Elections, and his latest book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Kesa. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Alex. And on Thursday night, President Biden made a speech in front of where the Constitution was drafted, an iconic building in Philadelphia, and it was, it was dramatically staged. But unfortunately, all the networks refused to carry it. They thought it was, it was a political speech, so as though talking about saving American democracy is a partisan issue, but apparently it is a partisan issue. And President Biden made clear that the threat to American democracy are the MAGA Republicans or Trump's MAGA Republicans, and that they don't believe in the will of the people. And uh, he ended up the speech by saying, vote, 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 vote. So 
Is that it? Is that our only chance to avoid a kind of uh, one-party state, which it seems that the Republicans are bent on creating? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, the, I think that actually voting and winning elections will constitute a crucial, crucial part of what can happen to prevent um, the, a takeover, a, a dissolution of our institutions and, and minority rule. I mean, part of what a part of what, uh, what 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 President Biden was talking about was a goal that the right wing of the Republican Party has been seeking for quite some time, which is how to really remain in power without without a majority of the votes. Um, so I, you know, I think vote, vote, vote makes sense. But I also think there was another critical theme in Biden's speech, um, which which was not about just casting votes. It was not about voter suppression. It was about making sure your vote gets counted and gets counted fairly. And I think that that's, that's something that has become a more prominent concern in the last couple of years with uh, the former president's rejection of uh, election outcomes as counted uh, in the past and the, and the uh, drive by MAGA Republicans to get their own folks installed in positions in different states and counties and municipalities so that they will be in charge of vote counting. So I think the issue is not, is, is not just vote, 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 as it was once perceived to be, but vote, 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 and really try to do something to make sure votes get counted fairly. Well, that means, though, in effect, could you make the case that this election in November is our last chance to retain American democracy, as imperfect as it is in terms of voting? I mean, if these election deniers who are running for secretaries of state and attorney generals in many and key swing states, some of them are absolutely outrageous. One of them, of course, uh, running for governor of uh, Pennsylvania, a key swing state, Mastriani, he actually attended the uh, January 6th insurrection. So once these people take over, your vote will become meaningless. So do you think Biden made that case to the American people? Not that uh, all of them saw it, or many. It was only played on uh, MSNBC and CNN. Of course, Fox News didn't carry it. Do you think that could be the message going forward in this uh, as we get into the elections? Uh, I don't think that's precisely the message. I mean, I think that that's certainly, you know, a concern and that we have to do everything we can, we, for, for people who support, by their support democracy um, with regard to this election. But um, my own view is that it would be too dramatic to say this could be our last election. I think that there, um, that if people like Mastriani um, and other fellow travelers win elections, then things will be seriously jeopardized in some states, but not others. The, and the, the country will be divided in terms of perceptions and the quality of, the, of democracy. Um, but I, you know, I, I thought that uh, that the speech was notable for this, you know, putting aside this November election for the sense of urgency um, that it conveyed about the assaults on democracy um, and for what seemed to me to be uh, a I, know, I, th I think I think he's been talking to people who spend time reading and uh, thinking about these things that uh, the sense that he conveyed that he was uh, he and others are obliged to call it out. You can no longer ignore what's going on. you can no longer, pretend that it's part of the mainstream. Um, I, I, there's a line sometime early in the speech where he says, you know, things are not normal. And I, that, struck, I mean, that seems to be true and a very important statement. Well, apparently, in many ways, it was the visit a couple of weeks ago by a group of historians who sat in the map room and talked to Biden via TV monitor since he was recovering from COVID in, up in the uh, family quarters in the White House. The historians played a clip of FDR making a speech in 1938 uh, warning America about American fascism. And, of course, at that time, the fascists had taken over Germany and 
Italy and, and were on the march. So that apparently really sort of, first of all, Biden wasn't aware of this speech and was quite surprised and shaken by it. They also pointed out that there was an, a kind of plutocratic coup attempt on Wall Street against FDR as well. So that's my understanding of where the sort of awakening came for Biden. And a lot of Democrats, actually, uh, particularly the more activist ones, feel it's, uh, you know, it's 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 been a little late, but uh, better late than ne never. Well, I, th I think that's true. I mean, he had been criticized for a while not to um, about not saying more and not being more uh, uh, sort of sharper in his, you know, in his attacks. And in some ways, in, in the fact that he was treating this as politics as usual or normal prior to this speech, at least at least in the public eye. And I, I, this seemed to sh you know, signal a change in tone. And um, he's being attacked accordingly by the Republican right. Um, and I imagine that, thing, that the, the temperature will keep rising for a while. And again, I'm speaking with Alexander Kayser, who's a professor of history and social policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where his current research interests include election reform, the history of democracies, the history of poverty. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And previously, he chaired the Social Science Research Council's National Research Commission on Voting and Elections. And his latest book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? So... Do we have, in terms of polling, Alex, any idea of how many MAGA Republicans there are? I mean, Biden went out of his way to distinguish between the Republicans that he worked with in the Senate in his long career and the MAGA Republicans, although the traditional Republicans are somewhat cowed and silent at the moment, except with the exception of Liz Cheney. Do we know what coalition has left that the Democrats could expand on to bring independents and disaffected Republicans into a coalition in November? It's an excellent question, Ian. And to my knowledge, we don't have a sure-footed answer uh, to that question. Most of the estimates uh, seem to see the MAGA Republicans defined, however, as about 30 percent um, of the electorate. Um, but then again, you know, there's other polling um, that suggests that, for you know, for example, 80 uh, percent of all Republicans think that um, Trump won the 2020 election. So I, 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 th I think that what's clear is that uh, the, the universe of election deniers and um, people who are really not supportive of of democratic institutions, if those institutions lead to their losing, lead to their losing power, um, I, it's a definite, it's a minority, but it's too large a minority to simply ignore it. To treat as a fringe, um, and that minority will be winning offices and has already gained some offices, and it will be, uh, it will be winning others. I mean, you talked about Pennsylvania, but there, uh, um, I suspect that they will not win the governorship of Pennsylvania, but there are other places where they may well win secretary of state uh, positions and more local offices. Uh, so I think, you know, we're talking about a minority. We're, we're definitely talking about a minority, but we're talking about a mobilized minority. So then how do you mobilize the silent majority? I guess that's Biden's task and the Democrats' task. Uh, I, th I think that's precisely right. I think that I think that that is, that is his task. Um, and I, and I think that that's what he is, you know, setting out to deal with. And I presume that discussions within the White House said you can't, you know, you just can't be mobilizing for Democratic candidates without alluding to the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room uh, is that uh, there are all of these election deniers going on and the former president becomes more and more stringent. I mean, and, you know, let's let's also be clear about one thing, which is that. If you discredit elections, which seems to be the thrust of the MAGA Republican world, if you discredit elections, what do you have left? What you have left is force. Uh, 
If you, if you can't use an electoral mechanism to determine who gets into power or to change who's in office, then what you have left is force. And that's very scary. Well, it's always sort of been a problem with liberals and progressives, uh, this sort of 18th century notion of enlightenment that he who has the best argument wins. And it, it doesn't seem to work anymore. I mean, just think about the contrast now. We're learning about Trump mishandling highly classified information is hardly a sufficient way to describe the 73 empty folders with top secret national security markings in bold on them, S, you know, TSSCI, etc., that the case against him is building, and it's frightening the extent to which the nation's top secrets have been compromised, and we don't even know what happened to the The, the folders were empty. Where are the contents? Where are these top secrets? Has he squirreled them away somewhere else at Bedminster, or has he already sold them to the Russians and the, and the Saudis? We simply don't know. So you contrast that reality with Trump's tweeting out on Friday that he will pardon all of those involved in the insurrection on January the 6th. So there, there are alternative universes at play here. Yes, there are. I mean, I confess that I do not, uh, I'm not on Truth Social, his new uh, medium. But yes, there are, when I, when I read, um, for example, in the New York Times this morning, um, the accounts of the claims that were being that he was making that he uh, Trump himself was making um, about the FBI, et cetera. It, it, it's it's quite extraordinary. It's detached from reality. Now, you know, I I think that the other question lingering around, which uh, maybe the uh, maybe we'll see some change here, has been, well, why are why doesn't the Republican political leadership um, really disown this stuff. I mean, you mentioned Liz Cheney and there are a few others, but, you know, keep waiting for, uh, for the Republican political leadership to, to just, you know, finally say, look, we, we can't go on this way. This, um, th this stuff is, uh, is not reality based. It's, it's not truthful. You know, this week we had a tiny hint from Mitch McConnell when he talked about candidate quality in the races for the Senate. But I think, I, I, you know, many people have been waiting for a long time to see the Republican political leadership, which is said privately uh, also to think that all of these things are kind of nuts and dangerous, but for them to take public action. It really hasn't happened much yet. My guess is that it might happen if they lose big in, in, the, in, the, in this fall election. But that's just a guess. Well, it's also a guess on my part that Trump will not be indicted until after the election, uh, even though it looks as if the case against him is, you know, in other words, the train has left the station. Uh, the latest filings from the DOJ in response to Trump's call for a special master are so devastating, it's hard to not to assume that there will be an indictment. And curiously enough, it's Trump is... A, <laughs> himself is the reason why we're, we're learning about all this stuff. So in many ways, he's his own worst enemy. And it's quite possible that in desperation, he may announce that he's running for president, which is really going to upset the Republican establishment and not to mention the aspirants out there like Ron DeSantis. So I don't know that we can count on that. But is that, at the end of the day, Trump in many ways is his own worst enemy? Um, you know, it's certain you can certainly read the evidence to say that, and certainly this with this last incident around the papers in Mar-a-Lago and the various contradictory statements that have been released, um, it very much look you know it very much looks that way. On the other hand, he's he's got a track record of many decades where um, he may look like he's his own worst enemy, but somehow he slithers out of it, and somebody bails him out, then he doesn't really get punished and. Um, he declares bankruptcy and leaves other people holding the bag. So uh, I don't think the final verdict on that one is in yet, Ian. Well, then just in closing, uh, Alex, I mentioned earlier that I thought that the Democrats might well run this campaign until November on the basis that this is your last chance to vote because if 
the MAGA Republicans get into office, then your vote will be meaningless. So short of that, you suggested that might be a little too dramatic. What kind of a, a campaign slogan or issue would, would you suggest the Democrats should run on in the last couple of months now? Um, I, I think that's something that maybe slightly less dramatic, although, my God, I'm not, I'm not a campaign consultant, but something which which focused on the need to strengthen democratic institutions or, you know, make, you know, um, it would depend on the state also and the locale in which you were voting. If it was in Pennsylvania, you might you might want to say something more direct, like make sure uh, make sure this isn't the last vote of yours uh, that get, that gets cast. But I think nationally arguments about uh protecting democracy and nurturing democracy and uh um would be strong arguments uh for a lot of people but they also have to be accompanied um by his dealing with you know the other very concrete issues that are out there uh, you know for example with the economy or the lingering effects of, of covid but the economy in particular well alexander Kaiser, i thank you very much for joining us here today it's, it's always a pleasure, Ian. Well, thank you, Alex. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Kaser, who's a professor of history and social policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where his current research interests include election reform, the history of democracies, and the history of poverty. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and he previously chaired the Social Science Research Council's National Research Commission on Voting and Elections. And his latest book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with Dr. Sasha Dovzik, who grew up next to Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which is now, which is now under threat from Russian occupiers. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Sasha Dovzik, who is a London-based author from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, and a special projects curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London. She holds research affiliations at the University of London, and she has an article at CNN, Don't Wake the Nuclear Giant on Our Doorstep. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Sasha Dovzik. Uh, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, you write in your article at CNN that since the age of 10, when you stumbled upon a book about the consequences of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, you've had nightmares about radiation poisoning. And you grew up in Zaporizhia, which is very much in the center of a struggle over the control of the nuclear plant, which since March has been in the hands of the Russian invaders. However, the Ukrainian workers are still in charge or working at the plant under great duress. So the IAEA inspectors were there on Thursday. Apparently, several are staying until Saturday, and two of the inspectors will stay permanently, according to Russian sources. So at this point, is the nuclear danger, has it abated or is it still lingering? Uh, that's all right. Uh, that's all correct. Uh, your information is up to date, and uh, it's indeed a sign of hope that the uh, mission of the International Atomic Energy Association is at the site. Uh, however, it has not stopped uh, the occupiers from um, conducting shellings in the region, and currently one of the lines connecting the Zaporizhia nuclear power plants to the grid in Ukraine has been cut off and um, the plant is relying on a reserve line. How long that will last, we do not know. It's not the first time that the lines are being cut off by the constant fighting and shelling. Um, and each of these instances brings the threat of a nuclear disaster closer, obviously. The only way that we can be sure 
that the nuclear power plant that is the largest in Europe, it has six nuclear reactors, is not disturbed and continues to function properly and peacefully, uh, is the deoccupation and demilitarization of this zone. It's bringing it back under the control of Ukraine and of Ukrainian staff who have been working really heroically under such duress and under such stress. Um, it's been noted even by the commission and uh, by those who are staying at the plant at the moment uh, that the courage and professionalism of the Ukrainian employees of the of the plant has been really remarkable. And we have to understand that it's uh, very skillful, high-trained technical professionals uh, who have not fled the war zone and remained in the plant um, under constant threats of the occupiers and under constant shelling, they have remained in their workplace and they are the ones who are keeping all of us safe here uh, in Ukraine, in Europe and globally. So is it possible, since Putin has already weaponized energy with cuts off of gas from uh, Gazprom into Germany and he keeps doing that for so-called maintenance reasons. Is it possible that he could redirect the grid away from supplying energy and electricity to Ukraine, which I think relies something like 20% of its electricity comes from Zaporizhia, and divert the grid back into Crimea? That's been something that's been brewing. Uh, how far along are the Russians in doing that? In other words, weaponizing electricity. Uh, yes, that's one of the strategies of their war at the moment, because uh, they apparently are not as successful as they expected to be at the battlefield, and they have quite a few uh, uh, leverages left, such as energy and nuclear terrorism. So they are using that. Uh, there were talks about uh, them redirecting energy from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to the Crimea, but we have to understand that technically it would be really difficult to perform this operation. And it poses numerous threats because um, it has to be performed again by those highly skilled and trained professionals um, who are now not able to work at their like, full capacity. Um, and some of them are refusing to collaborate with the occupiers. I just, um, since I have an opportunity, I thought it would be um, apt to mention one of those who have uh, already died at the hands of the occupiers. It's the diver of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh, his uh, name was Andriy Huncheruk. Uh, he was uh, tortured to death by the occupants because he refused to dry the cooling pool at the station, uh, which uh, would pose a nuclear hazard that was, uh, would be similar to the one created at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in 1986. Uh, that, that's that's insane, by the way, to do that. The ponds that you're talking about contain the spent fuel rods, and they need yeah. to be cooled constantly. And if you drain the water, there will be steam explosions and massive amounts of plutonium will be exploded into the air. So it's hard to believe that the Russians had intended to do that and this one man died in order to stop it. Mm, that's right. I hope that we will remember his uh, heroism. So the pre-war population of Endahar, the town that you visited as a school child on a trip to the plant, which you found to be sort of dull because it was run so professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, no drama, uh, yes. now that population is down considerably less than the 53,000 pre-war population. And the mayor is saying that the Russians routinely rob people, steal cars and mobile phones. And anybody who expresses solidarity are arrested and taken to a basement and tortured. So it's a horrible situation for the locals. You're going back to Ukraine tomorrow. Where where will you be going, or is that something you don't want to talk about? Um, no, I'm quite free to talk about it. I'm not moving uh, to Zaporizhia, which is my native city. It's uh, not where the nuclear plant is based. The plant is based like 50 kilometers away from Zaporizhia. But if anything goes wrong, um, Zaporizhia would become part of the exclusion zone and this is not where I'm excited to be at the moment. I'm going to Lviv and Kiev, 
which is western and uh, western Ukraine and the capital of Ukraine. And in terms of military activity, these areas are considered more safe, although uh, no place in Ukraine is currently safe as it were, uh, because anything can be shelled by Russian rockets. Like, for example, the last time I was in Kyiv and it was hit by a rocket. Um, it was a missile which uh, flew critically low over the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So it was fired from the south, from the Black Sea. It targeted Kyiv, where I was at the moment. And it was flying just over the nuclear power plant with six nuclear reactors. This is the kind of safety and security that the Prussian nuclear power plant is currently experiencing. So with the death of, recent death of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, there's been a lot of praise for him, particularly from the West. Conversely, of course, he's loathed in Russia itself. In Ukraine, because of Chernobyl, he's not exactly held in high esteem, right? Because he was one of the, uh, well, he was part of the cover-up, clearly. But you say in your article at CNN, Sasha, don't wake the nuclear giant on our doorstep, that the Chernobyl disaster became a kind of the nucleus, if you will, of a political and an environmental movement in uh, Ukraine that may have contributed to the independence of the country that came five years after the Chernobyl catastrophe. Yes, that's true. Um, Actually, uh, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster was one of the causes that really mobilized the people of Ukraine in their movement for independence. Um, many of uh, Ukrainian activists, of Ukrainian writers, authors uh, were affected. They uh, recorded the stories of the survivors of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster or they were uh, affected personally. For example, one of the official Soviet writers, Ivan Drach, uh, who was a nuclear enthusiast and an enthusiast of the Soviet project even, uh, his son was mobilized into the zone in 1986, and he sustained a high dose of radiation and suffered from uh, radiation sickness and health problems for many years. And this affected Ivan Draj, the writer, and he changed the course, uh, he changed his politics, he became an anti-nuclear campaigner and one of the leading figures of the pro-independence grassroots political organization called Ruch, or Movement. And this movement was really behind the Ukrainian um, independence campaign. So uh, he was just one of these leading intellectuals, one of the leading writers of his generation who became political activist and who sort of was fueled by the uh, mass grievances related to the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Ukrainians uh, in their masses realized that this worst nuclear disaster in history was brought to their soil by the Kremlin. It was covered up by Moscow, and it is only through independence that Ukrainians can gain back control over their land, over their soil, over their destinies. So for us, Chernobyl is obviously a tragedy, but in a weird, paradoxical maybe way, it is also linked to our independence. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, Dr. Sasha Dovzik, The war in Ukraine could go on for a long time, and it seems that Putin is trapped. It's obviously not going the way that he had hoped, but it doesn't seem like the last thing he'll do is compromise. So what is the feeling in Ukraine about this long haul that's ahead of them? And obviously now with a counter-offensive underway in the south around Kherson, Ukraine is going to suffer more casualties. It's going to be a heavy lift to drive the invaders out. So what you're going there tomorrow, what's your sense of of the resignation of the Ukrainian people to a long war? 
Um, I think it will uh, finally not surprise anyone that Ukrainians uh, feel very defiant about the struggle. Um, it probably came as a surprise in February uh, when it was uh, predicted that Kiev would uh, fall in three days or something like that, um, that Ukrainians were so willing to fight for their lands. But six months into this full-scale invasion, Ukrainians are still defiant and still fighting. For us, it's an existential struggle. Uh, we do not have an option out of this. We just have to have to uh, sort of grind uh, and fight for, with whatever we've got until uh, we drive the occupants out of Ukraine. There is no other option. And this is what I hear from the soldiers, the volunteers, the fighters, and just civilians who uh, stay in Ukraine and try to support the army of Ukraine in any way possible by just pleading masking nets in their spare time, donating for the army, um, cooking uh, hot meals for the soldiers or for displaced Ukrainians. It's really an all-people, all-Ukraine movement. And I'm sure this is what will eventually bring the victory. But it does require, of course, as much as Ukrainian people are helping the cause, the country's under occupation, at least parts of it are, and the rest of it is under, under attack, and indiscriminate attacks against civilians. So the dependence upon weapons coming from the West from NATO and from the US, the US seems to be fairly determined to keep uh, supplying Ukrainian military. I'm not sure about Germany and other allies. They've been a little slow. But what's your sense of whether, obviously, Putin's strategy would be to try and exhaust the support in NATO and in Europe? What is the, what's your sense of the likelihood of that? Uh, I think we have to just uh, be very careful about the Russian propaganda, which, as you say, will try to sow doubt in us that the Western support is working. Um, the Western support is working. <laughs> we can see it now. The offensive in the south of Ukraine would not be possible without the highly effective Western weapons, including HIMARS, that we have received. All those attacks on uh, Russian ammo depots in the Crimea would not be possible without the Western military support. Uh, we need all that to continue fighting. And we also need to stay tuned to the Kremlin's propaganda and try to inoculate ourselves against it as much as possible. Stay united and support Ukraine. This is the only way forward because, you know, um, it doesn't end in Ukraine. We are all interested in Ukraine winning this war. Otherwise, it will spread. Well, I thank you for joining us uh, here today, Dr. Sasha Dovzik. Uh, very, very grateful for the time and for your attention to the topic. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Sasha Dovzik, who is a London-based author from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, and a special projects curator at the Ukraine Institute in London. She holds research affiliations at the University of London, and she has an article at CNN, Don't Wake the Nuclear Giant on Our Doorstep. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park
One more life. 